Well, kia ora koutou and welcome everyone to the final hoon of the year on the kaka with Peter Bale. Peter, you're looking great. Thank you, Bernard. I've decided to put a collar on today, if not in a complete shirt. But you know, I, I may still be sitting here in my underpants, but I'll look I'll look decent <laughs> from the from the mic up. Uh, I was just thinking, actually, we should hold and hold instead. You know, there could be some pretty extraordinary news over the Christmas period. So I am very happy to come on and do a do an extra one uh, sometime over the over the year if you like. But I, I I did say it was the last one of the year just just because it's the last of the spin-off bulletins for this year. Uh, if people want to trudge trudge through what I've done. Yes, so um, the first year of the Kaka. Do you mind if I just sort of give us? Yeah, some... no. Well, so look, Bernard. I'm, so let me just let me just precede pre pre this. So Bernard, as you all know, is an old friend of mine and much admired colleague. I don't know anybody in my life in journalism who's works as hard as Bernard, or is as committed to good journalism as Bernard. And I've watched him teach others, mentor others, and be unbelievably productive. Now, Bernard has launched his own thing, the Kaka, which many of you are on. And I really admire what he's done. He's got something like, I think, a thousand subscribers now. And he is pioneering uh, this new approach to individual publishing by a journalist. Uh, and I'm very glad to be part of it. Now, Bernard, you've had some pretty big stories this year. You you called COVID and the end of elimination uh, better than I saw anybody. And I, I know some of the people you were talking to. You also called and I think got the government's ire, really, about housing. And you've kept calling it all the way through. So what have been the highlights of your first period with, with since you launched Kaka in September? Yeah, well, I've been extraordinarily um, pleased and surprised at how much people want to engage and get involved and mm. start asking me questions and commenting and apart from everything else, subscribing. I mean, the mere fact of paying some money to um, get an email every day and then uh, get involved in the community and start asking questions and digging around these issues in the political economy. Just, I mean, I can understand people paying money for, you know, um, Sky TV to watch the... Well, the Herald. <laughs> the Herald, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but to talk about the political economy and housing and interest rates and um, fun stuff that's happening all around the world, it just surprised me all the mm. time. Good. I'm really, really pleased and having an awful lot of uh, fun doing it. And in fact, some more good news today. Uh, I was awarded the uh, the latest um, Substack Fellowship, which essentially is a, um, uh, a, a series of uh, um, groups and, and chats with other people in Substack. And uh, I get some extra resources from Substack and I get a chance to work on the the platform and building it. And let's, let's just re remind people that Substack is a very, very um, clever American uh, platform designed for individual publishers. Its CEO is a very nice chap we both know, Hamish McKenzie, who hails from Alexandra, which I believe is in the South Island somewhere. Yeah, I'm in, in awe of um, Hamish's achievements. And for those people who have uh, Substack uh, subscriptions, you'll know just how brilliant the system is from a a reader and um, subscriber point of view, but also from a publisher uh, point of view, it's amazing. Mm. Um, in part, I know how hard it is because in 2012, I effectively had to build my own version of Substack for That's right. Hive News, which was to essentially weave together a publishing platform, a database, a payment tool, an email um, provider, and uh, and try and build some sort of um, community with it. And it was. Mm. It was um, it was okay, but hard, um, hard work and, and pioneering to do it from scratch. But just just going back to the Kaka though, Bernard, what are the big stories that you think are going to follow through? You know, so so like I say, you 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 know, in a world of sort of um, there, there was some very excellent reporting on on COVID and on the elimination strategy from you, Mark Dalder at Newsroom and Patrick Smelly at Business Desk. Um, there's also been some very good factual stuff, I think, from Stuff in particular, and maybe Derek Chang at the Herald. But what what what's struck you if we if we think about a little review in, in into the kaka and into what you've been covering this year about that COVID story uh, the two or three pieces that i did in which i um asked the question should should we uh, drop the elimination strategy um this came at a time when uh the government itself wasn't quite sure whether to drop it there was debate going on internally which i'd uh, heard wind of and just looking at the various facts, um, it 
it became clear to me that uh, we had worked ourselves into a, a bit of a corner. We'd painted ourselves in and we didn't quite know how to get out. And those two or three articles uh, that I did were um, the, bit, the most read, uh, most shared um, pieces that I'd ever done and uh, spoke to you know, how important COVID is and, and how important our self-belief you know, as a mm -hmm. country, we built up this idea that we were special. We'd managed to beat the demon and we were doing it again. And then we realized that actually um, we weren't going to be able to beat the demon. And part of the reason we couldn't do it is because of the basic problems that we uh, have been talking about on this. Which is, which is where it becomes this political economic yeah, story of inequality, exactly. long, long scale in, 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 inequality. Some very, I mean, the, the South Auckland out, out, outbreak oh, yeah. presumably would not have been as poor without that level of inequality. And also, um, you know, multi, multi dwelling housings and, and uh, you know, problematic housing and all of that. I mean, you, you're f quite famous, Bernard, if I may say, without, you know, completely um, doing something appalling to you now. Um, about housing and the housing dilemma and how housing is the central dilemma of New Zealand. Um, I, I noticed that uh, somebody we both know, Barry Saunders uh, and, and Carl Dufresne were attacking the media for, go, for going on about uh, Christopher Luxon's seven houses. Yeah. But that seemed entirely relevant to me. Oh, absolutely. You know, he, he is an exemplar of the right investment strategy. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's in a special position. A, he's now the leader of the opposition, you know, one heartbeat in an election went away from being Prime Minister. B, uh, he has um, pitched himself as someone who could run our economy better than the existing government. Mm. Also, um, he is someone who presents himself as a you know, master of business and uh, an, an investment professional. And um, right now, housing is the main problem right at the heart of everything. Mm. And uh, when you look at the uh, opinion polls on what are the top issues that New Zealanders feel need to be solved, it has been housing, 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 even through the middle of COVID, even higher than yeah. COVID and health. And and so he needs to um, be really clear about what uh, he can do, how he's different, and what his special skills are, his particular set of skills. And unfortunately, yes, I think they're still to, still those skills are still, still yet to emerge. Yeah, and um, it is relevant to know mm. about his own personal investment choices. I agree. So, so Bernard, what do you think if you, if you flip forward to next year? You've also been a bit of a, you've been a bit of a uh, a dove on inflation. The US is about to about to go to nearly seven percent inflation today. I think it's going to be announced later right, on, yeah. or forecast to be. You know, what's the outlook for New Zealand house prices, New Zealand inflation, and global inflation? And would we have been so secure as we feel now with relatively low inflation, very high unemployment, if we hadn't had that year's grace period of uh, provided by elimination? You know, we had that very quick, very quick inflation, very quick, uh, you know, economic recovery relatively sensible debt levels and so on just how does that set us up for the year ahead i mean it's a huge factor that um we had that year when we didn't have many deaths mm. or lockdowns when the rest of the world did we had that enormous surge back in spending and in the housing market that we hadn't expected house prices rose 35 40 percent and um it really um powered the entire economy's um certainly late 2020 and early 2021. It's only now in the last three or four months that we've come off the boil a bit. I think the story next year, the one that will dominate the, the headlines uh, and our thinking about the world is, is how much our housing market slows down mm -hmm. because it's clear now in the last three or four weeks with the banks um, dialing down their lending uh, essentially locking up their lending offices and telling them that they can't do much for a few weeks while we work out what the Reserve Bank's new LVR rules mean and also whether we're being responsible with our lending. I suspect next year they'll uh, settle down a bit and clean things out and, and take stock. Also, there's an awful lot of tired people around. I mean, and it's not just tired politicians and tired people working in hospitals there's also a lot of tired people working in banks mm. and real estate agents so things will but, slow down but do you think it's going to be like a tapering slowdown i mean it just 
is is it is it is it is there going to actually be a slowdown? Will it will we, will it be reflected in any price falls or just a, a slowing in the rate of growth? Yeah, I mean the the key thing in New Zealand with the housing market is that uh, people are not forced to sell. So unless there's a massive increase in unemployment and and interest rates went from three or four percent to ten percent, which no one's suggesting. New Zealanders can afford their mortgages, so they don't have to sell. Mm. And so what we tend to do is go, we put the house on the market, we don't get what we want, and we're going, ah, oh well, so we're in a year or two, yeah. it'll be fine. And the only people who are in real trouble are the ones who are you know, divorces, estate sales, that sort of thing, where there has to be a sale, and they're the ones who get hammered a bit. And the last time we were in this position was 2008, 2009, and house prices fell 10%. Um, but there wasn't a mass panic or um, a mass uh, cascading series of sales caused by the banks. Unlike in America, where in many states you can mail your keys back to the bank and mm. walk out, in New Zealand you can't do that because they know where you live, and and also they've got this, they've got you by the short and curlies. You know, you could, you can't just leave the house. You've still got the mortgage. You still have to pay, mm. and they can essentially dip into your account and take your money. So uh, the banks, that gives their banks some assurance and it means that um, for a lot of New Zealanders, they just sit on their hands and wait. So I think what we'll see next year is a slowdown in the, in the number of sales going through, but not any sort of collapse in prices. And apart from anything else, both the government and the Reserve Bank are dedicated to keeping prices up where they are because mm. they need that. They need it politically and they need it economically. So that's, um, that's going to be interesting to watch. I think the really... Um, the I was other about key, to ask you this. Key, key thing is when our bloody borders open up mm. properly. And that will be an interesting uh, moment because the last 24 hours or so, we've been hearing from people like um, Stuart Nash that uh, self-isolation will be happening all through next mm. year. Mm. And that's going to disappoint a few people, I think. Yeah, national self-isolation, we could call it. <laughs> yes, so, right. And what about inflation, Bernard? Is, is, is inflation a, a, going to be an even more, going to be a bogey? Bogeyman, I hate that expression. Yeah, Is it yeah, going no, to be a bogeyman I'm, in uh, I'm, 2022? I'm, I'm still very much in team transitory. And uh, just in the last week or two, we've seen numbers out of China. Uh, weaker than expected consumer price inflation. Their central bank actually having to ease monetary policy because they're worried about a slowdown in their economy. And the one thing that I, I think is worth watching next year is um, when China gets Delta or Omicron. Because remember, they've got hardly anyone mm. vaccinated with a vaccine that works. <laughs> they've got plenty of Chinese vaccinated people um, with the Chinese vaccine, but it doesn't work very well. And if Omicron gets into China, um, and remember, they're still pursuing a hard, uh, a hard elimination strategy. And unlike in New Zealand, where you have to get reelected every three, three years, they just shut everything mm. down mm. and they don't care. So uh, I think I think what we're going to see is the the inflation comes off the boil, in part because um, the rise in wholesale interest rates will force it, and also because um, uh, COVID is not finished yet. So I, I still think we're going to see the Reserve Bank in position in a position to start cutting again towards the end of next year. Mm -hmm. I'm the only one who thinks Interesting. that. Interesting. And and the same with the Fed. I don't think they'll get to the point late next year where they're actually just actually just on the just on the subject of the reserve. So that's very interesting. Thank you, Bernard. What just on the subject of the of the Reserve Bank it was very interesting to see David David Seymour and Simon Bridges sort of doing a rather gruesome double tag on uh, Adrian Orr, the yeah governor yeah, no, of, the, this, of the Reserve this is, Bank. This is fun because the convention is if you're a, a minister or a, an opposition spokesperson, you can criticise the Reserve Bank policy or the Reserve Bank Act, but you can never really go in there and put the knife into mm. the guy who's running the joint because they're a public servant. It's like they're putting the knife into to, to Ashley, Ashley Bloomfield. Oh, it's yes, yes. Sacred and, territory. That's right. Um, and, and so for David Seymour... Uh, to be fair, he has criticised the Reserve Bank quite aggressively. Mm. In fact, he compared Adrian Orr to Muldoon last mm. year. Mm. But for Simon Bridges to come out and say, yeah, I wouldn't reappoint him either, uh, was pretty strong. That's pretty extraordinary, yeah, from the new, from the newly appointed finance, uh, finance spokesman. Yeah, and it, it, uh, it, it had, there had to be some very careful walking back 
within a couple of days. Um, yeah, well, there's a lot of walking back, really, isn't there? You know, I just, I'm just not. That that's fine. David Seymour is extremely good at shooting from the hip. Yeah. Um, the trouble is, it, it it generally just misses his foot, whereas Simon just did it and shot shot himself straight in the foot as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a great moment. Um, and I I suspect he hadn't really thought about it a lot. He was asked the question when he wasn't expecting it, and uh, it was a classic case of. You're in a room with two other people who think a strong thing, and you're sort of tempted to agree with them when you're having a discussion. With yeah, them. and then later on, you think, oh, actually, I'm yeah, I got pushed, I got pulled along on that one. I, I, I always get the impression with with um, with David Seymour that he that he thinks he's got a brilliant line, and as as we both know, when you're when you're writing a piece of journalism, the bit that you think that's brilliant is the bit you should delete first before you send it. <laughs> But um, I was really struck also by, uh, you know, Chris, everybody sort of, uh, somebody I know describes um, uh, Chris, Christopher Luxon as a, as a living LinkedIn profile. And <laughs> there, 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 is, there is a lot of that. And he, he did this weird tweet last night, which was sort of half gobbledygook, 90% unintelligible and unbelievably poorly punctuated. Let me just read it to you because I didn't understand one particular bit of it. And, and I don't think it makes any sense whatsoever. National knows how to put aspiration, ambition, confidence, and the mojo back into and mojo, not the mojo, and mojo back into this country. Now, I think he's talking about our impetus, our mojo, not the Wellington coffee shop chain. We're not going to play a small, fearful, inward-looking game. Nice rugby analogy there. We will be out there in the world happening to our future rather than letting the future happen to us. Which sounds good, except that what on earth does we be out there in the world happening to our future. Does it mean we're happening to our future or is the world happening to our future? It is absolute nonsense. I actually agree with the sentiment and it is one of the things that worries me about New Zealand sometimes is this potential lack of, of uh, economic ambition at least. But uh, that's weird. Yeah, no, it's one of Does he need a sub? Or does he need a sub? He needs to be taught how difficult it is to turn a word into a verb. Mm. And and why you don't always you mean to Luxton something to Luxton something <laughs> Luxton something that's right we haven't quite got there yet but I think he does need some uh, advice and um, help on the communications front and mm. he may get it he's only just sort of started he'll have to appoint a, a chief of staff yeah I thought I thought him saying this week that being in prime minister's question time is much more exciting than watching it on TV <laughs> it's a bloody it was, was one of the lamest things I've ever heard from a politician. <laughs> Yeah, and he had a, a sort of a stumble on his first day, which unfortunately, in a world of um, television replays, is going to come back mm. at him again and again. Some poor soul in the library department at TVNZ and TV3 are going to be pulling that one out every yeah, day. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that, but, and I know we, we're going to look at international news in a minute, but again, it, it, Barry Saunders, this friend of ours, or friend of mine, certainly, uh, from 100 years ago, who is closely involved in the New Zealand Taxpayers Association, uh, was also referring to uh, Carl Dufresne, who seems to have gone completely uh, looping over to the right on something called the BFD, which I, I assume means big fucking deal, which is a blog that um, Cameron Slater is involved in. And they were saying that the Wellington Press Gallery is dominated by young feminist women uh, and that that skews everything towards Jacinda Ardern and just, it skews... And I, re I haven't quite done it yet, but let me just pray see what I, what I would write if I was going to, that that is the view of a pair of rather tired, late middle-aged old white men who are not entirely happy with the way the world has gone since they stepped out of media and who seem to remember some weird golden age when they either they set the agenda or the agenda was set by generally white middle-aged men, whether they're politicians or journalists. And I, you know, I don't know necessarily if those, if those women that they're referring to are great journalists, but they seem to do a pretty damn good job as far as I can see. And there is an entire, it is, it is true that generationally there has been a great change in journalism and it's largely largely for the better um, to have yeah. those people. And those, just, let me, those people have a different perspective on the world from the one that we perhaps did 30 years ago or 25 years ago. It doesn't mean that they're not excellent journalists, that they are unbiased in as much as one can be, or that they're not committed to the principles of journalism. But I'm, I'm damn sure we will have more stories about, about women, young people, social concerns than perhaps we would have if we were, um, we were doing it ourselves. Yeah. I mean, not you and me, because we're, we're so liberal, it's ridiculous. But, you know, certainly these old buggers. Yeah, I think it's an extraordinary change. You make a really good point about how 
um, the world has moved on from a, a certain viewpoint, which um, Carl and Barry um, are familiar with. Uh, the, one of the best ways to do it, to see the, the sort of um, his, a, a slice of history on one wall, is to look at the parliamentary press gallery and mm. see the end of year pictures of who's in the gallery yeah. every year yeah. since 1896. Yeah, I love that picture from the 18, from Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's some really hipstery dudes in the 1890s with the big bushy beards. Mm. And the beards which are, which have come back, of course. Oh, you know. of course. <laughs> and, and then, um, but it's all men, of course, and often old men. And then as we go through the 60s and 70s, there's a few women starting appearing. Mm. And then I think you're in one of them. Absolutely, in I should be. 80s. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm in. I'm in. An, I, from 2012 onwards, you're, you're, you're at the person in the front with the rugby ball. Yeah, that's right. And 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 of course, it just changes in complexion. Um, yeah, becomes younger. Obviously, a lot more women, and also a lot more Maori women in particular. So, to give you an idea of how different it is now, uh, in all of the press gallery offices, uh, I think only. Uh, one of them is now headed by a, uh, an old white man. Is it Barry Soper? No. Because <laughs> Barry Soper's in all of those pictures since 1896. Yes, he is. Yeah. yeah. Um, Much as I love him, or used to. True, that's true. Uh, so, for example, TVNZ um, mm. uh, is headed by a woman, and the uh, deputy political editor is a Māori woman. Uh, the press gallery chair is a Māori woman. Uh, and uh, when you look at the head of TV3, obviously Tova O'Brien, who's just, just going. Um, also in the Herald, uh, Audrey Young, uh, yep. here for a long time. Uh, Janetib Sharoni's doing a fantastic job at, at interest. I mean, and I'd also take issue with the likes of um, Barry and Barry and Carl, who say um, this is a cheerleading squad for the yeah government. i absolutely disagree yeah yeah i mean they may have a slightly I mean, different approach than I, I just think it's a very interesting i actually want to write a bit more about this at some point because mm. it is about watching change happen and I, and I have seen no evidence that those people are any less excellent journalists than some of the old farts that used to be that criticized them and in fact they may not just be uh, they may be much more connected, probably better educated in many respects, and certainly more connected to the interests of um, of their readers and a, and, a, and a younger audience, perhaps, than the, than the one we used to address, um, you know, sitting on my father's knee, uh, turning the pages of the Herald in the morning. That's anyway, right. that's a, a, enough, of, you, enough of my... Well, yeah, uh, just, and just to push back at those other guys who say we're all cheerleaders, um, Tova O'Brien, uh, Andrea Vance... If you talk to the Prime Minister or anyone in Cabinet, um, their their lips would snarl a little when these, these names are mentioned because they get all sorts of grief mm. from those guys. And it's just, um, and it's correct grief. It's not just gratuitous grief. Uh, and I, I actually, I just simply reject this idea that the press gallery is captured and some sort of um, propaganda arm of the government is just not true. Yeah. Listen to any of those one o'clock briefings. I know they're pretty much finished now. But you will know that um, Tover and uh, uh, Joe Moyer and the likes are really hammering away every day. And doing yeah, it's worth it's worth actually mentioning Joe because I, I don't I don't know her very well. But I, the, her, the the penetration of her questions with politicians and the her interviews, because you know some of those TV people are a bit shouty, they are a bit soundbitey, and they can sort of bite your arm off and lead lead, lead the politicians as a sort of bleeding heap on the floor, because they'll say now we've got to move on. Joe has just. Um, illuminated the moments of subtlety and doubt and uncertainty that politicians have in a way that I think is really is really terrific as has Mark Golder but not that Mark's uh, a woman but you know what I mean right let's yeah. get on with shall we get on with yeah. with other so news rather than just yeah, a, I'm, turning I'm, this into a bloody media review I know particularly I really Julian Tover is just just to answer Tover is leaving to join um Media Works new um uh radio talk radio service Yes, Today FM, which is designed to take on news talk, ZB. And the morning um, report. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah. Which is um, whose audience is collapsing, it would appear. Uh, well, the last survey Falling. was a little bit better. Was yeah. it? Good. Yeah. Um, now, I'm really interested in your wrap-up of the year and what a year it has been. I particularly loved the picture at the top of your, um, your uh, wrap-up of the year, which, I mean... Which, what you mean of the, of the QAnon shaman? Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Who could have dreamt this up on January the 6th that this yeah. would happen? 
Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. But I used a phrase in it, which I, I I'm you know being a being a bit of an idiot savant myself, I tend to look at history a lot or try to look at history a lot. And there's this phrase that historians use. Originally, it was a Russian historian used it about the 19th century, and he called it the, the, the long 19th century, because you had to look at the late 1790s and the early 19s in order to see how the how the 19th century had really played out. It had to you know run from run from 1790 to the end of the First World War. And I've I've described this you know just jokingly really in a way, but as 2021 being being the long 2021 because we're going to be seeing the impact of lots of things that happened in 21 roll over through Christmas into the new year and and well beyond. And you know that January 6 insurrection where the you know is not something that we can ignore. Um, it is not a blip. It is part of a gigantic conservative reshape or attempt to reshape America against the inevitable demographics of the United States. And it is a constant assault on democracy, of which that was just a particularly violent and spectacular assault on democracy. And uh, I'm not absolutely convinced that the media, the judiciary, uh, and the political system in the United States is up to that, is up to dealing with that uh, scale of essentially a disappointed generation who are seeing their entitlement and political power ebb away in the face of demographics, you know, and you've got really remarkable attempts that we've talked about. You know, we talked about the ger the jerry and the salamander to create yeah. gerrymander, you know, the attempts to stop people voting, stop the wrong people voting, and we know who the wrong people are, is is, is extraordinary. So yeah, I did, I, I, I did start with with January the 6th, because I think it's, uh, mm incredibly important but let, let me just run through a few of the things that happened last year i'm not going to read the whole thing although of course everybody would like me to to do that um and i'm going to also i i you might have noticed bernard that i didn't really do much about covid except recording the death the global death rate for every death numbers for every month and that is a very it's a very salutary uh thing to do um navalny was put in jail having been poisoned the year before the coup in Myanmar, which you've now seen Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Peace Prize uh, winner, um, jailed now for two years. You know, that, that is that is going to be a pariah state, and I doubt anything is going to happen to improve anything. Ukraine and the pressure that Russia is imposing on Ukraine is going to step up. It has stepped up. It happened and it started in April. Or this, this latest phase of it started in April. We also have to look at Georgia, where they've tried this before. And of course, when you've got somebody like Biden, which is a little bit more, more like this, Saying that they, you know, the the territorial integrity of Ukraine is sacrosanct. No, it's not. They took the they took the uh, they took the Crimea. You know, there's there's a precedent for all of this. And the, you say that December January is often a time of um, surprises and. Big yeah, my mother-in-law told me off for putting my, you know, my mother-in-law or chief sub, as I think of her, um, uh, put. Put, told me off for saying big shit happens in, in December, but it does. You know, the, yeah. the the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan happened then, the killing of um, Nikolai Ceausescu, all sorts of things. The um, the tsunami, you know, all of these you know, big big stuff happens. And, and the reason we all know that is because you tend to have a bit of a skeleton crew on in newsrooms and so you're, you're scrambling. Um, May was the Hamas, the Hamas attacks on Israel. Uh, which were confronted and, and fought off by the Iron Dome, but led to a really tremendous, you know, 10-day 10 10-day 10 war launched by Benjamin Netanyahu, um, which of course was really a war for his his future, which uh, fortunately didn't go to, well didn't go terribly well for me not they say fortunately. Um, Afghanistan, August, the American, the beginnings of the American withdrawal, the incredibly rapid withdrawal, the fiasco, the tragedy of watching people fall from uh, US transport aircraft uh, as they were taking off, taking off from Kabul. Domestically, again, in the US, and I don't always want to focus on the US, except that, as we saw Luxon being talked, being asked about his views on abortion, some of these issues are global issues, the, and the attack on abortion, on abortion rights in the United States is going to be a defining phase of the next of the next year it'll define the how the supreme court in the united states is seen uh and whether it um you know and that will that will flow out you know the the, the people will be the kind of people who protest outside of uh, abortion clinics will be emboldened by this um 9 11 we looked at we looked at that but i mean i'm not the anniversary i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go into that too much um you've got Alexander Lukashenko, who my, my mother-in-law did quite like this one, who I described as the nodding dog in the back of Putin's car, <laughs> um, you know, ran, a, ran an absolutely farcical um, 
and, and profoundly cynical attempt to push um, Middle Eastern refugees through the through the, the Belarusian border, having flown them or encouraged them to fly from Turkey and from uh, from Iraq and Syria uh, into into the EU. You know, the, these you know Putin and Lukashenko are the mo are the most extraordinarily cynical people. And uh, what worries me, actually, which we can talk a bit more, is the Putin has won in a sense. Putin has won the current diplomatic round. He's been listened to by by Biden. They had a conference yesterday, and people are uh, are um, at least giving him the seat at the table that he that he craves. So, so yeah. tell me what what's what Biden done that's um, upset a few pe people well, in Europe to essentially you know make a concession. Well, effectively, it's, it's it's not the, the concession hasn't come yet. I mean, first of all. What Putin wants is to be taken seriously, and he will create any amount of chaos until he's taken seriously, and, and until Russia is taken seriously. And Russia's got, you know, military and gas, pretty much. There, I don't think there is, and it's also got the potential to coordinate with China. I don't think there is any uh, coincidence that Ukraine and Taiwan are happening at the same time. Both mm -hmm. sides are testing uh, Biden and testing the Biden administration and testing their resolve. Um, of course, Putin will also be testing the resolve of the new German chancellor. You know, the idea of it's very nice for the Americans to say, let's turn off the Nord Stream gas pipeline. But Europe's going into winter and would quite like a little bit of that gas. Thanks very much. And we know that Putin has suppressed supplies through other means as well. So, you know, he's setting them up for a very, very risky winter. And also the, when the US talks about Nord Stream, it's also because, you know, people like Ted Cruz, want to sell American gas yeah, to Europe. Course, yeah. You know, it's, this is not as this is not as clean as we think. And what, what worries people, and particularly if you think about, there's, a, there's a, uh, a guy in the FT today, uh, a guy called Marco Mickelson, who's the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee in Estonia. And let's, let's remember, the Baltics have, uh, you know, had 20 years in a sense outside the Soviet Union when they were, you know, occupied by the Nazis and then occupied by the, by, by the Soviet Union. And this, this guy, the, the, the Foreign Affairs Committee chairman, said that he senses that this is 1938, that there are glimmers of 1938 when Neville Chamberlain uh, came back and said, peace in our time with, um, with, with, uh, you know, with, with Hitler. And that was over Sudetenland, the German, German populated uh, part of Czechoslovakia. And of course, what, what this guy is pointing out is that the negotiation at the moment doesn't even concern Ukraine. It's Washington and Washington and Moscow. And the critical thing that Biden has offered and in fact initiated today is a conversation with the leading NATO members about whether there might be areas in which they could accommodate Russia's red lines. And that is that oh, is boy. not acceptable to, you know, Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, the Romania, the other countries that, you know, butt up against Russia. Um, you know, Georgia is not in the Euro European Union, but, you know, Georgia is facing daily almost daily encroachments, wind-ups, provo provocations on its border. He knows how to do this stuff. So I, I, you know, I, think, I think Biden is being tested. And I, in my personal view, is that Biden is uh, so far, and according and as well as Blinken, is being found wanting. Yeah, and, and the thing about um, Biden is, is that, you know, his first major act on the world stage was to pull American troops out of a country now uh, that may well have been the mm. right thing to do but the way it was done and also the the damage to america's reputation through the way it was done tells you that he's not willing to risk american boys lives on other territory and that's right you, the ukraine uh and and the whole european um situation really means that the europeans are going to have to rely on themselves and they haven't been doing that for 50 years They've yeah been... and they're really worried about that as well they're worried about relying on themselves you know that you know you've had brexit you you know what's gonna it's gonna be very interesting to see how how emmanuel macron uh plays off against against the german chancellor the german chancellor's first trip will be will be to to, to paris mm. and meanwhile putin just he he is an absolutely superb and cynical prov provocateur you know, and and this this idea that somehow territory is inviolable and the post because it's you know we should be clear here that um, you know it is a it is a post nineteen forty five agreement that uh, uh, wars uh, that define borders that were defined in nineteen forty five can only be changed by negotiation uh, and you know but we've seen that violated particularly in the Ukraine um, we've we've seen that violated as far as the uh, um, Nagorno Karabakh goes we've seen that. Um, violated you know, with, with Georgia. And you know, Russia is very determined to preserve what it sees as its sphere of influence and to not have 
NATO weapon, NATO, particularly sophisticated anti-missile weapons, hard up against its border. And there's a different tone as well in the way that China is operating. I don't know if you heard about Lithuania. Mm. So Lithuania essentially decided to throw in its lot with Taiwan and set up a... a you sure that's not what... I, I thought Lithuania was what electric batteries were made from. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, interesting country uh, because it's not that different in size from New Zealand mm. from memory and, and also has been quite independent with its policy very keen on um, reinventing itself as a sort of Silicon Valley of mm. the Baltics. And um, and went with Taiwan. Uh, China, just in the last couple of days, have never been happy about it, of mm. course, decided to remove Lithuania, Lithuania from its customs computers. Mm. So that means all of the Lithuanian exports of tech stuff to China, it's on the wharves, but it can't, yeah, no, because it doesn't exist. The country doesn't, doesn't exist. exist. Yeah, we've just so, gonna, we're just going to delete you. Yeah, Com computer so, says no, Lithuania. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it's just very sort of blatant and just pure power politics, which we're not used to. We're used to people, no. you know, at least pretending a bit. No, just bang, and that's the the sort of different tone of it, um, because democracy is so weak, and uh, the problems with Trump and Biden has meant that you know these these. Um, Russians and the Chinese are going, well, actually, you know, our system works better than yours. So we mm. can throw our weight around a bit. Well, that's exactly. So let's, let's look at China. That is exactly the proposition that China is proposing, essentially, that it it likes chaos in the United States. It likes chaos around the place because it makes it makes China look stable, sensible, growing, uh, intelligent, thoughtful and committed. You know, and, and in a somewhat some respects, you know, who can argue with that when you've had uh, you know, several years of, of Donald Trump, at least we only had one, one term of that, when chaos was, was the norm. You know, there was self-generated chaos inside the United States. Very interesting development, I think, uh, on the whole China thing and Taiwan, which I, I, I do think we will see uh, further provocations over the next two or three months in this, is Japan really putting its, its weight behind Taiwan, which has now led to a, to a negative reaction from China. And if you remember what often happens when China gets into a diplomatic spat with um, with Japan is that people start stop buying Japanese gear and they start attacking uh, Japanese, you know, shops and factories and so on in China. And that will be very interesting to see if that is ha if that happens now. Because the the, the Chinese are very good at uh, weaponizing and mobilizing all of these people um, with na very nationalist, often quite young nationalist views uh, to really have a have a crack at it. And that, I think you're right. Twenty twenty two might be the year, apart from whatever happens with COVID, when we learn a lot more about Taiwan and about Ukraine. And also we start to see a lot more of these um, flare-ups in the Pacific, like the one we saw in the Solomons. Yeah, in the, the Solomons, absolutely. It's a very interesting, very interesting problem with New Caledonia next. And there are arguments amongst it, you know, people who really know the Pacific, of which there are very few journalists left really this, who, who cover it to the, to the level it warrants being covered, that there are Chinese there's Chinese influence, if not Chinese official influence, but there is Chinese engagement, people with economic interests and so on in some of those countries who are not entirely um, innocent parties in what's what may go on in some of those countries, particularly in Melanesia. Yeah, and, and all, all the while they've got all sorts of stresses going on there. Tourism sectors collapsed yeah. and climate change is nibbling away at them all the time. It's a it's a tough thing. And um, Chinese And Chinese fishing boats bearing down on them. Yeah, and we actually had a defence uh, review announcement this week that did mm. a lot of coverage in New Zealand, which pivoted. It was very interesting, I thought. Yes, because it was also it also played a little bit differently to them than what uh, Nanaya Mahuta, the foreign minister, has been saying, and it was a little bit more hardline. It would be very interesting. I very interesting to see if New Zealand joins the diplomatic um, boycott of the of the of the Beijing Winter Olympics. I predict that we will not, or that we will be forced to at gunpoint um, to do it. I don't I don't believe that that. You know, because it's it's the it's the it's the usual sus it's the AUKUS people plus Canada who've withdrawn from it so far. I'd, I'm not sure that New Zealand, that fits quite with what Nanaya Mahuta has said about engagement. And no, and, and I think there's um I think there's a, an active debate inside the government about how to deal with this, which means that there's a lot of fudging going on. Mm. So the last couple of days we've heard from the government that the reason we're not sending any diplomats to the Beijing Olympics is because COVID, and yeah. they can't go. Well, actually, we still have a bunch of diplomats inside China who have applied to go, and um, we'll find out whether we've joined the boycott or not, or whether we're gonna just um, 
play footsies on the side because uh, there's now a lot more uh, people on the side of the debate, which is to say push back at China, who feel emboldened. To give you an idea, Simon O'Connor, who is uh, the uh, National Party's um, MP, which is part of a cross-parliamentary group um, being very aggressive about uh, criticising China, which the government, um, Louisa Wall is the, um, the Labour Party member of this group, who's, who's a sort of a, a, a bit on the outer of the um, Labour Party's uh, arrangements. Um, Simon O'Connor coming out quite mm. strongly in a select committee saying, let's have the boycott. Uh, and even inside the National Party, they're not quite sure what to do. Jerry Brown no. says, let's not poke the bear and uh, or the dragon. And yeah. um, Simon yeah, which... O'Connor's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we, can we, let's, let's not poke either the bear or the dragon, perhaps, <laughs> yeah, right now. Or, or Jerry. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting time, it, quite different um, to when, for example, uh, we launched Newsroom in 2017 with essentially an investigation to expose the uh, the background of mm. uh, an MP who was the head of our foreign affairs and trade. Yep. Which was which was a nutso period. Just while, while we've been talking about COVID, we, we should talk about Omicron and the oh, yeah. possibility of how that's going to go. I mean, you and I have been discussing it from time to time, you know, and we've all had that that you know the right response to it has until now been sort of too early to tell but and i just put up a very good link which i i hope people will be able to have access to to the economist analysis about this about the current data which would appear that it has extremely high infectivity of something like the ability you know each each person could could infect up to eight people um so very high infectivity lots of infectivity uh, in the in the younger um sector of society apparently relatively Modest, modest um, uh, symptoms once you've once you've been infected, but of course that will also leave if it's highly infective, it will lead a lot of people into hospital with much more serious um, implications as well. So I, I don't know, Bernard. I feel as though that you know it will be sometime between now and Christmas that the first cases start to appear in New Zealand. I feel sure. Yeah. Just as and, we're opening uh, up. Oh no, and uh, that will. Play through, play out through Christmas, New Year. So far, we seem to have dodged a bit of a bullet with keeping those numbers below 100, and I suspect holding back on opening up Auckland's borders until next Wednesday. The fifteenth, yeah, yeah, will has has bought us a little bit of uh, time. Interesting. It could, yeah, it could, it could, you know. And also, get Luxon. What the hell is he talking about saying we should have gone to green? based on what evidence but just there's, there's actually a, a, a look this is going to sound like an incredibly mean-spirited story but it, because it's about several people who are basically shits uh, i'm going to say it anyway um in the uk um um uh the justice the justice secretary dominic raab the um christ what is he the transport secretary um uh, shaps and the um uh, leveling up Minister Michael Gove have all had to go into isolation because they had contact with the Australian Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, who has uh, got got COVID and presumably got um, Omicron. I mean, if you had to wish it, wish wish uh, an illness on on four people, that probably would be them, just about. But I know that sounds mean spirited and awful. Hey, just before we go back into the questions, mm. uh, tell me about what the hell is going on in in Britain with this. Well, it's a fabulous and... it's a fabulous story. So let's just the. the the, the why we're all why journalists are going on about it why it matters is nothing to do with whether there was actually a part it was with partying or being unreasonable it is that the country was under lockdown the country had you know there's 150,000 people died in the UK and Boris Johnson is a liar Boris Johnson has built his entire career on talking on fibbing he's built his personal life on fibbing dissembling and being a bit of a rotter and the you know, this is one of those stories where the denial becomes worse than the story itself. And it would appear that there were not one, but three parties gather. They're now calling them gatherings, actually. There's a there's an excellent piece in The Times about trying to define what the difference between a gathering and a party is, especially a gathering where you dance and play Secret Santa and, and have a quiz. There was a quiz night as well. As well. Um, so it all sounds really ludicrous. And then, of course, that when, that, when it gets tinged with cynicism, which is what happened when the Prime Minister's former press secretary uh, used, used, uh, was, was discovered having um, recorded a mock press conference where she was asked about it and laughed, and they were all clearly in on an in-joke. 
and that doesn't doesn't wash well. But the a friend of mine, um, uh, Matt Kelly, who's the the editor of um, the New European, which is an extremely clever uh, pro pro uh, anti Brexit publication, or started as an anti Brexit publication. He's had some very interesting run-ins with Downing Street yesterday, which again go to this, or this week, which go to this trust issue. Um, he reported a story by, uh, by somebody else I know, James, um, uh, Christ, I've just forgotten his last name. Anyway, uh, a story about um, whether Boris Johnson had said at a meeting at the Garrett Club to a whole bunch of um, uh, uh, telegraph journalists that he was having, quote, buyer's remorse, close quotes, about his marriage to Carrie. Yikes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, which they which they then denied, threatened to sue um, the New European about, and then denied that they threatened to deny, denied that they'd threatened to sue them. You know, despite um, Matt having evidence. So Matt has today written a piece, which I'll just I'll I'll um, I'll um, put up on the thing, which is that Matt's argument is that as a former journalist who had an unbelievably bad reputation as a journalist, including being fired from his first job at the Times for inventing, <laughs> he invented a quote from a historian. The and was fired. The best aspect is that that historian was actually Boris's godfather, <laughs> yeah, which is which is a, which is a, a beauty. Then at the Telegraph, which is where I, I encountered him in, in Brussels, he invented, as Matt says, nonsense stories like an EU plan for one size one size fits all euro coffins, and a department policing the bend in bananas. And as Matt said, it was all bullshit. But when it kept re, kept resulting in profile and promotion, who cared? And so he he argues that this man is a bluffer and a liar, and has um, you know built his entire reputation on this. Um, I, th I think I told maybe the story a while ago uh, when Boris was exposed in the Daily Mail as having had one of his affairs and lied about it, which led to his resignation from um, from uh, the from the then opposition uh, front bench. His daughter at school raised a petition amongst the other school kids in order to send a, send a, send a, a petition to um, the, Daily, the Daily Mail complaining about them uh, running inaccurate stories about and wrong stories about her father. Of course, two days later, it was he admitted it and it was proven to be true. Oh, so the my. poor kid was grotesquely embarrassing. But just Matt's line, and this is, this is where it gets real, is as he says, quotes, Johnson's coming downfall at the hands of those who understand him best, i.e. the journalist, is a form of karmic cannibalism we've never seen before. So yes, I, 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 I love the idea of I love the idea of karmic cannibalism, and it and it is it is going to come. I think I don't you know the his ability to tough things out is going to get very very ugly. His it would appear that the um, <laughs> this the the oxymoronic or unadvisable job uh, his ethics advisor. Um, he hasn't. Have, he hasn't. It would would appear to be, and not entirely happy that he appears to have lied to him about the uh, the his knowledge about who was paying for the refurbishment of his of his flat. So, you know, we're getting the combination of wallpaper parties in the place where the wallpaper was put up. It's it's a it's a shambles. Yeah, I've also put a link into a, an excellent uh, um, first person piece by Max Hastings, mm. who was a former um, newspaper editor who actually was Boris Johnson's boss. I mean, I think he was in Europe and essentially wrote this piece saying Boris Johnson is completely unfit to be the prime minister. I know he's a dancer and a liar and that's not a good person to be the prime minister. And I know this because I was his boss. Mm. And it's um, it's sort of amazing, really, that Johnson's there and we'll see how long he lasts. I see his backbencher are, uh, uh, are pretty restive and... Um, keen to uh, vote no confidence at some point. We'll yeah, let, let's also just think about why this matters too. This, I, I, Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's former press secretary, and I think we can all agree that we have some, you know, I used to know, I used to work with Alistair, but Alistair has some issues around Iraq, uh, the invasion of Iraq, the dodgy dossier, the death of um, Professor Kelly, as does does Blair, of course. But, you know, Alistair's done a very good job of reinventing himself as a mental health advocate and a generally interesting chap. But as he said, about this party gate and the whole Downing Street thing. Putin is laughing at us. Johnson is reducing the country to a global joke. And there's potentially irreparable damage done to our power and standing in the world. And this is without issues like lying about Brexit, lying about the Northern Ireland Agreement. You know, there's some there's some serious stuff underlying us and it's going to be quite entertaining to um, watch him drive his own clown car off a cliff. So, um... Or, or as, as uh, his... 
former press secretary Dominic or former uh, advisor Dominic Cummings said that he's he's a he's a supermarket trolley with a broken wheel just bouncing off every wall. But you know, I think clown car works as well. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, time for questions. We would love to see your questions thrown at us. Obviously. And we do have a we do have a skateboarding dog story coming up. And I would like to thank the person who had quite a lengthy Twitter exchange about the Bob Monkhouse joke I told last week. <laughs> good, good fun. Um, just having looked through the uh, the questions, we had a very good Ask Me Anything uh, earlier today, which I, I really appreciated. Uh, that was good. Um, there's some questions here about uh, self-isolation for 2022, can it be justified? And um, so far the government's managed to uh, use its success with elimination in 2020 and early 2021 as a justification for an awful lot of things. And it's hanging on to that through the summer. But I think from you know February, March onwards, this, the loud noises from what's left of our tourism sector and the education sector and of course, all of those employers who are desperate to get people in, let alone all of the New Zealanders who had hoped to come home for Christmas, that's now off, will be desperate to come home as soon as they can after that. Um, I also think it's worth just looking at the polls. The last political poll we had actually, it just only came out a week ago, also uh, just before Luxon came into um, the national leadership. It actually showed that the uh, Labour Green combined vote at 46.5% was behind the National Act vote at 47%. That's the first time that's happened in more than two years. And um, even in February of last year when National and Labour were uh, neck and neck, uh, the combined centre-left, centre-right vote was still not that close. So essentially Luxon is taking over at a time when the government and the Prime Minister are, are weak and actually I think a bit tired. I don't know if you saw that interesting exchange, a clip from her um, Facebook Live of the yeah. Night Yeah, Day. saying you may hate me but you know I think you've got better things to do if you hate me. Yeah and she basically yeah. said um, I'm over this of being attacked on Facebook Live. I'm still, ex it's just extraordinary she's still doing them given the noise and the grief that comes flying at her on the, those side panels um and she was clearly uh a tiny bit rattled yeah exhausted actually mm. just looking at the the way that she was dealing with it i have to i have to feel, feel for it. i wouldn't be doing that if it was 10 30 at night and i was buggered and going on to facebook live to have no 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 you'd much rather much rather do an hour, an hour long podcast with me on a friday afternoon <laughs> exactly. when, you, when you could much be having a cold beer somewhere yes yeah yeah and um, she was tired and, and actually um, looked quite um, emotionally. Ah, so is she pregnant again? Is this, can, we, can we get that rumour going again? No, 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 I, no. Didn't, I didn't say that. Ah. Um, no, okay. so I think what's interesting is I think everyone's inside the cabinet is tired. And I think if... Well, there are only about four people in the cabinet. Who are making the big decisions, yeah. yeah. If come February, March, and Labour is really behind in the polls and everyone's saying open up the borders, I think there's a chance they will, uh, uh, particularly if we go through the summer without a, a massive explosion in cases. Um, there's some interesting questions there. One of them, which is um, Mark Richardson as a National Party MP, we'll see. Uh, I'm not sure he's a great politician. I think he's probably a better broadcaster than a politician. Um, oh, three waters, is and we're better, and we're better journalists than we are broadcasters and politicians oh, yeah. <laughs> and everything else, and, pa and parents and husbands. Yeah, so I think uh, Gary and I think uh, also Sonia has asked the question what about next year with uh, local government, three waters, resource mm. management act, climate change? Um, three waters, uh, their hope was it would be introduced into parliament before Christmas, that's now off. So we've heard in the last couple of days that that's not going to be put through to Christmas. My sense is the groundswell blowback and the what I think is looking like an investment strike at council level mm -hmm. against various government um, measures is starting to wear on the government. And again, as the polling gets closer, the government's confidence in pushing through things that are unpopular will start to wane. So my gut feel, if I had to put money on three waters going through before the council elections, which is in October next year, I'd say unlikely. And the RMA reform too, um, one of the great reasons for the RMA reform is to get lots of houses built. But in effect, 
this latest uh, Townhouse Nation mm. thing, which is going to go through before Christmas, and it's been watered down slightly, but not that much. Uh, that that is actually doing a lot of the work of the RMA reform process, and it wouldn't surprise me if RMA, which was supposed to go through before the next election, will get put off as well. So um, the point I think that Sonia makes, the whole of Wellington just looks exhausted, is exactly right. Yeah, but that's just because they're always living in a hellhole with shit washing down the street from the sewers, isn't it? You know, it's, it's just, Wellington is a Wellington. I mean, everybody looks exhausted in Wellington, not just the politicians. <laughs> in normal times, no, no, hmm. there's there's. Um, there is definitely a, a case to say a lot of people need a really good holiday. Yeah, but I think, but Bernard also, it's, and I was thinking this, this yesterday, listening to the very clever Aisha Verrill talk about this, this smoking thing, smoke-free 2025. When you scratch the surface of these people, they are big government, big believers in government's ability to, to, to control. You know, I, I, I am not an anti, I'm absolutely not an anti-vax person. I agree with the lockdown principles. I'm a bit worried about vaccine mandates and, and where that's all going. But the smoking one is, is a really statist intervention. You know, thou shalt not buy cigarettes under any circumstances. You know, and Mr. Patel's dairy will be going out of business. I don't know. It's a very controlly kind of approach. And I'm not saying that necessarily from a sort of libertarian you know, they should all smoke cigarettes and fall over, um, you know, it's their own choice way. But that was a very, their approach is still remarkably statist, including Three Waters. It isn't terribly well explained, in my opinion. And I think there's a journalistic failure there, too. I don't feel so. Well, I've, yeah, I mean, no, we... Andrea Vance wrote something the other day, which which essentially equated uh, opposition to, to or questioning of, of Three Rivers to being potentially racist. And I think that's, it's too easy to say that. I am really interested in, in the in the iwi aspect of it but in a sense you have to ask would it, you know what would it, why would that actually be so wrong yeah um that's the, the iwi aspect of three waters is misunderstood but you're right it is um, is important so um one of the fears of course is that uh, iwi will um accidentally on purpose somehow get partial control of the water assets and get control of revenues from water charges there definitely will be water charges but the saving grace for those people who are opposed to that is that Standard and Poor's and Moody's and Fitch want nothing of, mm. of um, having uh, iwi in control of any of those revenues because then uh, that link between water charges, servicing... Mm. Um, Becomes very hard to maintain. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and the whole point of Three Waters is to, be, is to allow the owners or controllers of those assets to put water charges in. The only place where water charges are in now is uh, pretty much Auckland. And the other cities, um, uh, the, the, the point of Three Waters really is to drive through waters, uh, water charging over the top of councils who on the whole are opposed to it. Yeah, so even even if even if they're poisoning half their half their citizens yeah, with yeah. bad water. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I I think that's that for those people worried about iwi control and iwi revenues, and I also agree that you know, um, at some point uh, there has to be a redistribution of income and wealth back to those who have suffered over the last um, mm. couple of hundred years, and that's one way to do it. But um, the ratings agencies will stop it and. The fact, the point of Three Waters is to carve those assets off to allow them to generate um, revenues to serve as debt, which is supposedly off the Crown's balance sheet. So, Bernard, before I tell another um, Bob Bunkhouse joke, which I just dug, dug up from his grave this afternoon, but um, do we need to do the skateboarding dog story, which, oh, which yes, is the, yes, yes, yes. the plan, the plan uh, that um, Scott Morrison never, never wanted to miss an opportunity jumped on, which is the idea of, of, of having a big ute uh, statue, a big ute on a plinth in Geelong, just south of Melbourne. So this is like the uh, the big carrot in mm. Bakuni. Yeah. Or the um, I think there's a big cow in Morrinsville. Yeah, there's a big pineapple. There's a big pineapple, pineapple in Queensland. That's right. Yeah. 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 No, so it's a big ute. And there's a big nothing in Ekaterhuna. <laughs> yeah. A big ute. And now I'm, the question I'm asking is. So what type of ute? Is it a Ford Ranger? A no, 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 no. It's got to be. It's got to be either a Holden or a probably an old Falcon, an old Falcon ute. True. Yeah. You know, but but Morrison said, and I just for those of you who've been asking at various times about my brother, my brother, one of my brothers does have a ute and has a sign on the back, one one that's rather rather harsh about um, Jacinda, and another one which says Utes are butte, all spelt wrong. But anyway, <laughs> Morrison said, I love Utes. How good are Utes? 
and how would good how good would a big ute be that's what i'd say ah <laughs> uh, scotty from marketing yeah so Good i can tell you so the the two two other amusing ways to um to, to finish the week which is one of which is to do uh, on what amounts to radio which is extremely difficult which is um to describe a new yorker cartoon that i saw this week which is not a new one but i i absolutely love it and everybody knows that um uh lemurs are the amazing madagascan uh animal with the uh, mammal with the prehensile tail and it's a picture of thousands and thousands of them jumping over a cliff and of course one is one le leading lemur is saying we're lemurs not lemmings <laughs> oh, okay and the bob monkhouse one that's just last one i might do an arthur Askey one next year although finding finding a good arthur Askey joke is a bit of an oxymoron and bob's one is i want to die peacefully in my sleep and i want to die peacefully in my sleep like my father not screaming and terrified like his passengers <laughs> Oh, that's good. Hey, All Peter, right. it's been a wonderful year. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great um, summer and get on the water. And um... well, I hope to do some of it with you. Apparently, yeah, we apparently we're going together to to Dara's um, guest house in um, in in Cable Bay. She's just oh. invited us. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, we excellent. So we, but, but we do we do we have a no freebies rule on this? I don't think we do, do we? We just we have a we have a pro we're pro feed freebies, not anti freebies, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. No, no. I, 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 ethics are us, and if you don't like those ethics, we've got others. <laughs> All right. Peter, thank See you, you very Bernard. Much. Thank, thank you very much to everyone. Thank you. Now, everyone.